Welcome, everyone, to the How to Get the Most Out of College podcast. There's a lot of talk about where to go to college, but not nearly enough about how to go to college. And it's the everyday decisions that drive your success. I'm your host, Elliot Felix. I've been a consultant to more than 100 colleges and universities, helping them improve their student experience. And I'm the author of How to Get the Most Out of College, where I take what I've learned about how college works and make it work for you. Instead of diving into a tip from how to get the most out of college, this episode's going to be a little different. We're going to zoom out to understand the higher education sector more broadly. How many colleges are there? How do you categorize them? What do they care about, depending on what category they're in? And what are the changes affecting them, whether it's decreases in funding from federal and state governments to declining birth rates that mean that there are just fewer 18-year-olds who can go to college to rising costs and growing questions about whether college is even worth it. Enjoy. So yeah, so this is a chance for us to talk about the big things happening in higher ed and how it might affect our work. And this is organized to talk a little bit about what's happening to colleges and universities themselves. And then what are the changes? What are the trends in the students attending those colleges and universities? The first thing is just understanding when we say colleges and universities, what do we mean and how many are there? And you know, these vary because there's different ways of thinking about, you know, are you including all colleges and universities? Are you using ones that are accredited? Are you using ones that grant degrees? Are you including for-profits? And it, I think the best way to think about it is that there are about 3,900 or roughly 4,000 degree granting colleges and universities that are either public, they're private, not-for-profit, you know, you can break them down into four-year or two-year colleges. There's roughly a third are two years and the other two-thirds are, are four years. I think the other thing that's notable is that, you know, there are fewer of them because they are consolidating or they are closing. You know, there are lots of different sources for this data, but a great one is the National Center for Education Statistics. And when you think about this breakdown, you know, you can think about them as public private, you can think about them as two year, four year, but the most common way that they're broken down, at least the way the institutions talk about themselves is the Carnegie classification. And they have this really simple, super easy to understand flowchart to break them down, which, you know, is not simple or easy to understand at all. I can barely follow it, but the basic idea is there are five key types and those types are based on different factors. So one is associates level, and those are basically based on granting associate degrees or baccalaureate, granting bachelor's degrees, master's institutions, doctoral institutions, granting PhDs, and then tribal colleges. And within those five big buckets, there are other breakdowns. So for instance, you know, they talk about Within associates institutions, are they a high transfer institution, meaning a lot of those students transfer into four-year institutions, or are they uh, mixed transfer and a lot of the students are there for like specific career and technical programs with no intention of transferring into a four-year institution. And then within baccalaureate, are they focused on arts and sciences? Or are they more specialized? So for instance, you might have someplace like MCAD here in Minneapolis, 
that's, you know, art and design focused, or you might have something like Olin College, you know, focused on engineering. And then within the master's bucket, it breaks down into larger programs, smaller programs, medium programs. And a lot of the master's institutions are often thought about as what are called regional comprehensive universities. Those are like the satellite campuses. If, you know, University of Michigan in Ann Arbor is what's you know called the state flagship. It has lots of satellite campuses like University of Michigan, Dearborn, for instance, or here in Minnesota, you know, the, the main campus is the Twin Cities, but you have satellites in, for instance, Duluth. And then doctoral institutions are really classified by the amount of research and that amount of research is measured in dollars. So you have very high, which are like, you know, the Johns Hopkins is almost perennially at the top of the amount of research funding. And then you have below that an R2. And then below that, you can have R3 or doctoral professional. And then there are also tribal colleges, which is a function of whether or not they're a member of AIAPC. That's the basic breakdown. And at these different scales, they have different priorities, like community college. They're really trying to sustain their enrollment. They were the hardest hit during the pandemic, down about 10% in students, because a lot of those students had limited time, limited funds, limited childcare, so many things that might get in the way of that, or they might be enrolled in some kind of hands-on program that was really difficult to deliver online. Like, you know, if it's about, you know, maintaining an HVAC system, you can only learn so much of that over Zoom. Part of it, you're going to actually, you know, need a wrench in your hand. They're also, one of the things I love about community colleges is how responsive they are to their local environment. So, you know, a new company moves in town and the community college is on it. They're thinking about workforce readiness. They're thinking about programs. They're thinking about ways to educate people nearby to work in that company or in that workforce. Their students are often, you know, attending part-time. So they're really trying to help them balance education with other life commitments. They're trying to make it easy to transfer into four-year institutions, which is unfortunately really difficult. I think about 80% of the students that enroll at a community college intend to transfer, but only between 10 and 20% do, you know, for a variety of reasons. And some of it is actually the bureaucracy and how do my credits transfer? All students tend to lose a lot of credits as they transfer. And they're also just trying to be financially stable because they have limited, you know, limited resources and really only, you know, two ways to make money, money from the state, you know, and, and federal or, you know, from tuition. Baccalaureate colleges, they're really trying to sustain their enrollment unless they're really at the top tier. About 40% of the colleges in the U.S. have less than 1,000 students, and those are the ones that are at risk of, of closure. They also really need to focus and differentiate. You know, there used to be plenty of students, which we'll get to in a second, so they could just kind of recruit nearby. But as you have fewer and fewer students, you have to recruit from a larger pool of students across the country. Now, all of a sudden, you're competing with people across the country. How do you stand out? They're really trying to create a sense of community, and they're trying to sustain their operations you know, without an economy of scale. 
Masters institutions are often, you know, regional comprehensives. They have financial constraints and they're often at a kind of an awkward size because they're bigger than a small liberal arts college that offers that like intimate scale, small classes, know your professors. But then they're also not as big as a big research university that can offer lots of things and give you lots of variety. And they're trying to find, you know, find focus. Like one of our clients was the University of South Carolina in Beaufort, which is near Hilton Head. And so they had all kinds of great things about hospitality. And they also had all kinds of great things about marine biology and, you know, the, the nearby environment and the ecosystem. But how do you find that focus? How do you work with other institutions in the state system? How do you find ways to like share back office functions, you know, might be finance, might be financial aid with other folks. And I think for research universities that, you know, doctoral universities, they're really, you know, they have kind of a different business model because in addition to, you know, revenue from state and federal government and tuition, research is a huge part of it. And you know, so are sports. So they have lots of different ways to earn income. They're trying to navigate other factors like Division One athletics, you know, which can change things rapidly now that kind of the conferences are forming and reforming and you've got teams on the West Coast playing teams on the East Coast. You've got students on planes. You've got TV deals. Often these places have an academic medical center. So, you know, sometimes that's a separate organization or sometimes like at, you know, VCU in Richmond, you have a sort of a head of the university and you have a head of the hospital and they both report to the president. Because there's so much research going on, they're also thinking about how they balance between that student experience and teaching and learning with, you know, research. They're also can be quite big, so it's sometimes hard to change at scale. And if you think about how that breaks down, 36% of the institutions are those research universities, about 20% are the master's colleges and universities, 29% are the associates, and the baccalaureate colleges are, you know, when you fold in the special and the focus, you know, they're in the 15 to 20% range. There's about 100 HBCUs, and some of them, you know, are at the associate's level where they might be a technical college. Some are at the baccalaureate level. Some are doctoral universities, you know, like a Howard University. And, you know, this breakdown is using the Carnegie classification. To my knowledge, they're not part of that classification, but in a way they kind of cut across it. And, you know, there's right around 100. I think it might be 102. The other thing that I think is really important as you're classifying colleges, you know, the Carnegie classification is great, but selectivity is another thing that I think, especially like in popular culture, is how a lot of people think about it. They think about selective colleges, you know, the ones that are, you know, hardest to get into. And what's really interesting is that those, you know, 200, 250 or so colleges that are selective, meaning they take less than 40% of the students who apply, that kind of sets everybody's perspective or perception of the whole industry. Those like 200 or so colleges that are selective, they're only educating like 10% of the students. You know, there's roughly like 16 million 
students in higher ed. So we tend to think of like the Harvard, the Yale, the Stanford, the Carnegie Mellon, but they're kind of like the exception to the rule. And 90% of students are going to other places. So 95% of institutions admit more than 40% of their applicants. And, you know, this is something to be thinking about. The cost has also more than doubled in the last 20 years. This is from the National Center for Education Statistics. You know, you can see just from 2005 to today, you know, average private four-year is going from 27K to 47K, public four-year from 12 to 21. That's a big shift. And I think, you know, the biggest driver of that was really the Great Recession because all of a sudden financial model changed from being mostly about the state to being mostly about the student. And most institutions became much, much more tuition dependent as state funding was reduced. And the other thing that happened as a result of that, in addition to now like universities, colleges, depending more on students' tuition for their funding, that tuition price that became more fungible, there started to become kind of a difference between the cost and the price that you might charge. And while high price used to convey high quality, it became a much more fungible thing and you could advertise with a high price and then you could give people not just need-based financial aid, but merit-based financial aid. And so the average price that people are paying is actually now less than 50% of the kind of sticker price. So, you know, things got a lot more complicated and one of the big drivers was the, the Great Recession. So we've got rising costs, but we've also got rising demand from the workforce. More and more jobs requiring higher ed reports talking about, you know, by the end of the decade, we will be 8 million college grads short in the workforce. But at the same time, the cost is going up and the benefits are decreasing, you know, as a result. And, you know, the other thing that's driving limited demand is a real change, you know, which you can read in the article or the daily podcast about political polarization. And so that's actually reducing demand as well as colleges are seen as bastions of liberalism and people that don't share those political ideas don't feel like they'll be welcome. And so that's actually reducing demand as well. Then there's also increased competition because you have other providers, you have boot camps, you have things like Google career certificates where, you know, in six months you get a Google stamp of approval for things like cybersecurity, data analytics, digital marketing, IT support, project management, UX design, and hundreds of thousands of spots for students. And that's happening at a time when generally government spending has declined state more so than federal. And I think, you know, as we have an aging population, governments are going to fund healthcare and K-12 before they fund higher ed. So, you know, it's kind of always fourth in line because you have like health and safety and K-12 education. And the other thing that's really interesting is the variation by state. So this is looking at state appropriations and it's declined you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's declined in basically two thirds of the states. 
And, you know, there's no clear pattern necessarily, right? A lot of the decline is in the South, but then you also see like Florida and Georgia and Tennessee increasing, right? Or, you know, you look and see, you know, mostly it's declining in the Northeast, but actually not in Massachusetts. So it's kind of all over the place. And part of that has to do with like differential growth in, in different states. This is looking at, you know, the last couple of quarters and lots of growth in the mountain region, in the South, somewhat in the Northeast mixed in the Midwest. And that the economic growth, the population, it also means that colleges are at variable risk, not only depending on their size, but their location and places like Michigan, where the demographics are really grim, there's just way fewer students to go to college. There's many more institutions at risk. And these differences can, you know, can affect priorities. You know, if you've got schools in the Northeast, they're dealing with declining population. They're dealing with college closures because they have more supply than demand. You've got the weather, you've got the funding in the Midwest. You've also got population issues. You've got college closures. You've got sort of a mix of increase and decrease in funding. So for instance, Illinois, Wisconsin, and North Dakota are increasing their funding. In the South, generally, you have a lot of population, you have immigration, you have diversification of the student body, you have economic growth, you have more political polarization, and you've also got new changes to access to abortion, which is influencing colleges' decisions and enrollment. In the West, you've got population growth, you've got climate change, and you've got a mix of funding. For instance, it's increasing in California and Oregon, but less so elsewhere. And amidst this growth, one clear trend is that universities are overbuilt. They've generally been adding space faster than they've been adding students. Some are kind of an exception where these things have been in line, but in general, universities have been growing too quickly in part with the idea of attracting, you know, attracting students. But then if that enrollment doesn't come, there is a reckoning, which is happening in West Virginia right now, where, you know, the president planned for a significant amount of growth. They did a lot of expansion to accommodate that growth and attract it. It didn't come. And now they're in a huge budget deficit and they have to cut faculty and staff and programs, you know, pretty, pretty severely. And I think just as colleges are changing, so are their students. The Lumina Foundation does a great job with this on their Today's Student Report. And they talk about how 42% are students of color, 37% are or over 25, you know, almost a quarter have children of their own, you know, half are financially independent, 40% are working full time. So, you know, people talk about a, a traditional student, which I think is a terrible othering term. I think it's better to talk about a post-traditional student and look at who today's students are and how we can serve them, but there are fewer of them. You know, enrollment has declined. 2010 was really the peak. And, you know, we went from about 21 million then to a little less than 19 million today. That's, you know, in decline. The other thing that's in decline is the number of students that choose college after high school. It's, I think, 62% today. And it was, you know, 69% just a few years ago. People also talk about this as the demographic cliff. 
that there's basically 15% fewer because birth rates dropped during the Great Recession. We're now reckoning with that and there's 15% less 18-year-olds, you know, starting in just a few years. So all those colleges that have struggling enrollment now, this is really going to turn up the heat. So if you think about those, the 40% of U.S. colleges that are under 1,000 students, they used to have a surplus of students. Now they don't have enough. And that's compounded by the fact that, you know, the job of a college used to be to make the case for their college. Now you kind of have to make the case for college first, like this is worth it. This is valuable. And then, you know, you come here. And part of the reason why that value is in question isn't just the politics and the cost. It's also the outcomes. Generally, you know, nationally, it's about 60% of students finish within six years, which is not a very successful rate. Of course, that varies, you know, when you think about those, you know, top 250 colleges with lots of resources, you know, their graduation rates are 95% plus, but many others are much lower. And of those students that don't graduate, most of the loss happens after the first year. So on average, the average persistence in higher ed is 80% from first to second year. So we lose like 20% of students from the first to second year. And one just nuance there, people talk about persistence versus retention. Retention is if you stay at the same school. Persistence is if you stay in higher ed, but you transfer. And when you look at why people drop out, about half of it is financial. This was a great study from UPCA and Straighter Line did a great study and it was, you know, 42% for financial reasons. And then they also had job loss at 11%. Sounds financial to me. So if you put those together, you know, basically it's finances account for at least 50% of why people stop going to college. The other big reason is belonging. And there's different measures of this, but we know that students who feel a sense of belonging are 41% more likely to continue from that first to second year. So we can, you know, you can close that 20% gap. There's different ways of measuring it. The NESI, the National Survey of Student Engagement, asks three questions. I feel like I'm part of a community. I feel comfortable being myself. I feel valued. And they put it at about 80% of students feel like they belong. The National College Health Assessment puts it more at uh, about 65%. And some of this is kind of surprising. Students who take all courses online actually have a greater sense of belonging, in part because they're more likely to be, you know, adult learners and have their shit together and be focused. And not surprisingly, people that are studying full time, that are living on campus, that are not first gen are more likely to have that sense of belonging. And, you know, we were talking earlier about the ROI. That varies not only by institution, but by degree. Third Way has done great analysis of college scorecard data, looking at, you know, which are the degrees that actually pay off. And a lot of this is not necessarily dependent on the college. It's more societal values. But, you know, a lot of the degrees in the arts and social sciences are at the bottom of the list. And, you know, nursing, STEM and, you know, lots of engineering disciplines, you know, are at the top in terms of ROI. As an industry, the demand for higher education as a workforce is growing. 
yet fewer students are enrolling and there are fewer students to enroll based on demographics and the, the cost is increasing. And that's largely because government support is decreasing. And that financial piece is really the big reason that students drop out. And as a sector, you know, there's becoming a real kind of like have and have not divide with the top, say 5% of selective well-known name brand, well-resourced schools, you know, and all the rest, as well as between two and four year institutions and the students they're trying to serve are themselves changing, which creates things that they have to adapt to. And as they adapt, it's not always in effective ways. For instance, they may be adding space faster than they're adding students and creating aging facilities with looming costs. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts and check out elliotfelix.com for all the episodes and the articles I've written, talks I've given, and more information about the book. Thank you.